Hello and welcome to Revolutions, a podcast about dispute resolution and prevention. For those of you tuning in for the first time, this podcast is a project by the ABA section of Dispute Resolution to increase the avenues where we can connect. One of four hosts serve as interlocutor, engaging in conversations with members of the dispute resolution community about topics of interest in the field. My name is Caroline Stoffer, and I'm one of your hosts. This week, I'm sitting down with Honorable John de Blasi to discuss the transition from the bench to becoming a neutral with NAM, National Arbitration and Mediation. NAM was recently voted the number one ADR provider in the 2021 New York Law Journal Best of Survey for the 11th year in a row. Judge de Blasi is the former presiding justice of the Commercial Division of the Supreme Court of the State of New York. During his illustrious career, he has arbitrated and mediated over 3,000 cases with an ADR practice that centers on resolving commercial, international, finance, employment, entertainment, land use, and professional malpractice matters. In 2021, Judge de Blasi was ranked a top three mediator in the United States by the National Law Journal Best of Survey. He was also voted the number one mediator in the country by the Corporate Counsel Best of Survey two years in a row and for the third straight year and was named a National Law Journal Alternative Dispute Resolution Champion as part of a select group of only 46 nationwide. And just very recently, In the 2021 New York Law Journal Best of Survey, Judge de Blasi was voted a top 10 mediator for the 12th consecutive year. He holds an AV preeminent peer rating from the Martindale Hubble in both alternative dispute resolution and litigation, a distinction given only to those who possess the highest ethical standards and professional ability. Hello, Honorable de Blasi. It is a pleasure to meet you. I'm happy to have you on our podcast with the ABA Resolute. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing really well. Please call me John. You know, I left the bench about 16 years ago, so it's okay to call me John. Good to know. Thank you very much. So hello, John. And um, I hear that you're with NAM, and I was wondering if you could give us an overview. Sure. Uh, I joined NAM approximately 14 years ago, and I've been a full-time arbitrator and mediator uh, during the course of my tenure as an independent who's exclusively affiliated with the company. And I know that uh, I had been given a few questions sort of to guide me in terms of uh, what I should talk about. One was, you know, how did I make this uh, transition from being in government and being on the bench uh, to become a mediator and arbitrator? And I've been pondering that the last couple of days and thinking about my career as a whole. And I had many uh, wonderful experiences uh, as an attorney and as a public servant, as criminal court judge, as Supreme Court judge. But the interesting thing, and I think all attorneys would relate to this, is that whenever you're going into a new endeavor, whether it's a a new law firm or it's a different governmental agency, for example, when I went from private practice onto the bench in criminal court, then I went from criminal court to Supreme Court, and then I went into other branches of government, and then I was with several law firms, The big question that you always have and the fear factor is, I think, for all attorneys is, what am I getting myself into? Is this a good match for me? Am I going to be happy? 
how are the people going to be uh, that I will be working with? And when I made that transition to NAM, of course, you have all of those questions going in because that's just the unknown as an attorney when you make uh, changes in your career path. And when I went to NAM, I think one of the hallmarks of it, my answer really goes into two areas. What was it like to make that transition into a position associated with a new company? And then what was it like to make the personal transition from being a member of the judiciary into being a mediator? The first part of the transition is going with NAM was probably uh, the best career decision I think I have ever made. It's an incredible company. Uh, from the first day that I was affiliated with them, what impressed me, and I'll talk about this later on uh, when we discuss mass arbitrations, is the professionalism, the efficiency, how good they are at administering the ADR process and the collegiality within the company. Over the 14 years, so many of the people, even though we've expanded dramatically, are the same people that I was working with 14 years ago. Our general counsel, Jackie Sylvia, and I have a very long relationship. In fact, we've been coordinating on a case that uh, is incredibly complicated, an emergency arbitration case. And I think the hallmark is when you go into a new organization and you find that collegiality, you find that uh, professionalism, it's really incredibly important because you feel comfortable moving in. And as it has panned out over the years, you know, everything that I always thought about NAM has really come to pass. You know, obviously, uh, they are one of the leading uh, ADR companies in the United States. You don't have to take my word for that. They've been uh, voted, uh, I think, eight years in a row uh, by the National Law Journal Best of Surveys for top mediation arbitration companies in the United States. I know the New York Law Journal for the past 10 years has uh, voted them the top uh, ADR company in New York. So basically my experience coming in 14 years ago, there's just been incredible growth in the company. And it has just been, you know, really the happiest uh, and most gratifying part of my career. And I have to say that uh, whatever success that I've had, uh, and I like to think I'm successful at this point in time, I have to attribute that uh, so much to uh, NAM, uh, the people there, the account managers, the schedulers, everybody I work with, the executive staff, marketing people. Uh, my success uh, as a mediator and arbitrator is directly attributable to my association, which uh, I believe is with the finest ADR company in the country. Now we go to the second part, which I'm sure you're interested in. Now I'm coming from the bench into this company and I am now making the commitment at that time, coming from private practice, doing uh, primarily commercial work and taking that leap, which was a leap of faith and saying, okay, I am now going to become a full-time mediator and arbitrator. And little did I realize that in a very short period of time, I would be doing this full-time five days a week, uh, very intensely over the years. I think I've done uh, probably six or 7,000 mediations. Uh, I believe uh, over 500 uh, arbitrations. But what was it like making that leap? And that really is a fascinating question because many people have asked me, well, you know, being a judge, you know, must have been very easy just to take the skill set that you had as a judge and jump over to the mediation and arbitration business. And I will tell you, nothing would be further from the truth. I would be kidding you if I said, oh, yeah, it was a piece of cake and I was a judge. And, just took these skills, trying cases, negotiating settlements, and I moved it over to the mediation arbitration business. So the first thing that I would say is 14 years later, uh, I am still improving at what I do. I learn something new every day. I learn something from the attorneys. I learn something from the litigants. 
and I'm constantly trying to improve myself and make myself better at what I do. But the interesting thing and what I tell people is this, is that when I was a judge in terms of getting cases settled, I had a really large tool belt. I had a lot of tools at my disposal and the tool belt is power, okay? I had this incredible power and you do as a judge. And anybody who tells you otherwise is just kidding you. I, but I think most litigators know this. I could, in an attempt to set a, settle a case, accelerate discovery. I could accelerate a motion practice, in other words, dispositive motions. I could accelerate a trial date. I could give the attorneys a very stern look when I'm discussing settlement. And because of the uh, you know, power of the office, and certainly I'm not suggesting that I would use it, but you know, it's just inherent in the position that you hold when you're sitting up there on the bench and you have the black robe on, and you really are in control of that courtroom and the fate of the people who are in it. Obviously, if I was making suggestions, the attorneys are saying to themselves, well, the judge is suggesting this. The judge is telling us that we're going to be moving forward probably uh, on a rocket docket, you know, faster than we would otherwise be moving. And therefore, we better get this case settled. Okay. So that's the power of being a member of the judiciary. Now I go into mediation and arbitration, and I have no power. And one of the funniest <laughs> comments that I think uh, a friend made to me is I, I was asked, what do you do? And I said, well, you know, I, I settle cases. I engage in negotiations between the parties and I try uh, to resolve these cases. And uh, the friend of mine turned and said to me, you mean they actually pay you to do that? And I said, yes, they do. They do pay me to do that. And my friend said, but I don't get it. You don't have any power anymore. You know, how do you do this? You know, you've got nothing going for you. And I said, you know what? Yes, in terms of the power, I do not have that power anymore. But what I had to learn is that, you know, mediation is about acceptance of compromise. And there's a learning curve as a mediator and also as an arbitrator, although as an arbitrator, you're acting as a private judge and you're really back into your role as a member of, let's call it, the private judiciary. But as a mediator, it is an art form to get people to accept compromise. And many people say to me, I'd like to be a mediator you know, how do I learn uh, the process? How do I develop the skills necessary? It, you know, that's extremely difficult because uh, it's an art and it's something that you learn by repetition, doing it over and over and over again. And I will say to you, making mistakes, you know, and we do make mistakes, you know, during the course of negotiations. Hopefully we make fewer mistakes, the more experienced we are, but we do make mistakes. And you learn from them. You have to be introspective. But what is it really all about? And what's the difference? And what was the transition like? Well, now I don't have this power that I had as a judge. And I have to achieve acceptance of compromise. How do I do that? Well, anybody who's involved in the mediation process knows that we facilitate and we evaluate. So you're trying to move the process along. But at some point, you're going to be asked by the attorneys uh, to give you or to give them your evaluation of the case which is very tricky because many times I'm asked by attorneys to give them my evaluation of the case. And the next thing I know, they're screaming at me. How could you think that? How could you come to that conclusion? And my response to that is, well, you asked, you know, I didn't offer, you asked me my opinion. I can't help it if you don't like it. It doesn't mean that I'm right. But really what is the difference, you know, is that you, number one, are a filter at all times. And you have to realize that you're dealing with very, very different personalities on a daily basis, and that you have to accommodate the egos that are always present in the room. 
And if you've worked with trial attorneys and I was a trial attorney uh, for many years, you know, trial attorneys have big egos and they never want to look weak. So one of the things that you're doing as a mediator is you are essentially uh, ensuring that no one looks weak, even though they may be weak in their position. You don't want them to feel or look weak. And that's part of the diplomacy of being a mediator. You have a joint session and you have to keep everyone uh, calm and not allow it to become combative. And then you have the filtering process as you're going back and forth between the parties and you're discussing with them what their position is and the merits of the case. And invariably what will transpire is that they will tell you their version of the case five or six times. You have to, as a mediator, learn, and this was part of the transition, you couldn't just say to them like you could as a judge, hey, listen, do this. Uh, you have to learn to use time because that's your biggest ally in the process. And then really what the critical part of it that you must learn, which is entirely different from being a judge, is you have to know the exact moment when to accelerate or slow down the mediation process but most significantly, where you do your where you use your diplomatic skills to make that evaluation, which is really very simple, telling them what you think about the case and attempting to guide them very slowly to a resolution where they feel that they have gotten the best possible deal that they could get for their client where their egos have not been deflated as a result of the deal, you can allow them to back out of their initial position and they're ready to make that compromise. And that is something that very often is, uh, to the attorneys, a frustratingly long process that goes on. But as a mediator, and I've had attorneys say to me, how do you do this all day long? You have to sit and wait. Um, that's the big transition. You have to sit as a mediator and wait for the right moment to get the parties to a conclusion. And that is why being a mediator and the transition is so incredibly different coming from the bench into the ADR process. All of that you said is really fascinating, especially saying that it's an art form to accept compromise. And just hearing you talk about the mediation process, being that filter, making sure that the room is balanced and using diplomacy. Now that right there, I believe is the truest art form because it is very difficult, especially throughout the process, you might find um, out information that really compromises the other side and puts them in a weak position. So uh, based off of your experience, what is one key factor that you can tell us that helps you create that balance in the mediation forum or even in arbitration? Restraint. Restraint. <laughs> there are times when I want to start yelling. And if I was still on the bench, I would be yelling. And I'm sitting there saying to myself, you just don't recognize your weakness or you don't want to admit your weakness. And what I have to do is restrain myself from being aggressive in terms of attempting to shift that party's position. And part of that, and the most important part of mediation is listening. You know, uh, I remember a judge who was very wise once said to me, you know, tell the litigants this, you know, you have two ears and one mouth, which means you should listen twice as much as you speak. And as a mediator, I listen. So in the first instance, you have to be restrained and you have to listen to make sure they get the sense that they have been heard. The second part, uh, Carolyn, which you really touched on, which I believe is the hallmark of mediation, 
is, and when I lecture about this, I say to attorneys, if you remember nothing else from my one hour lecture, remember this, the key component of a mediation, and you said it, is time. You know, the passage of time. I was working on a case the other day that I thought would not sell, but by extending the mediation so the parties had time to accept the compromise, I was able to get it to a resolution. So I think in answer to your question, I would say the two biggest components is the mediator has to be restrained. You have to take the time. On the side of the attorneys, the office suggests the same thing. You've got to give the other side an opportunity to be heard. You have to listen to the mediator. You have to restrain yourself from really becoming overly combative and not wanting to accept something that you're not hearing. And you also have to be patient. I find a lot of attorneys are impatient with the process. They'll say to me, why is this going on so and I'll say to them, well, that's part of the process. That's the works. So I, I want to touch on something very quickly before we move on. And it, it's in regards to your personal transition. So, you know, you're coming from the bench, going to the mediation realm. And I think you shared a little bit about the tool bell and, and the power accessible to you. Is there that perceived power anyway, going into the mediation forum, being that you were a judge is there that power, perceived power? And and secondly, there is maybe a perception out there that judges use an evaluative approach. It sounds to me that you use a mixed style, but what stance do you take? What do you think might be the best approach in mediation or is it just situational? Well, to answer your first question with respect to power, I don't think attorneys believe at this point in time I have any power whatsoever, but they still, after so many years, and, and actually it amazes me and I've told attorneys, you don't have to call me judge. They still call me judge. It's like when you retire from the army as a full bird colonel, they always call you colonel. <laughs> uh, and, and I think it's not that I have any power, but I think there is among the attorneys uh, a high level of respect for you because you were on the bench for uh, many years and hopefully you had a good reputation uh, while you were on the bench and there's a respect for your intellect but I think more importantly your respect uh, the respect for the knowledge of the law that you have having dealt with so many different types of cases and significantly and you talked about the evaluative aspect of it Respect for the fact that you know how cases go in. In other words, how they are presented, where the strengths and weaknesses will be, what the evidentiary objections will be. You know, attorneys, and when I was a trial attorney, I went from being a trial attorney to going on the bench. And the first day on the bench, I was terrified. I now had to make all of these decisions, whereas as an attorney, I was just, you know, I had this single focus. You know, I was just dealing with my client, that's it. My first day on the bench, I had 120 public cases that I had to deal with. And now I have to, you know, make decisions one after the other after the other. So what the attorneys are looking at is they respect you. They respect the legal knowledge that, they, that you have. They respect the diversity in terms of the cases that you've handled. Um, and I, they also respect the fact that you understand how cases will be presented, what the potential pitfalls, strengths are. But the biggest thing is the ability, and I would say this up front as a caveat, no one can predict what a jury will do. However, having tried over 300 cases to conclusion as a judge, I usually have, uh, I would say, a fairly good sense of how jurors will react to cases. And I always do my due diligence in terms of 
the particular venue that the case is in, whether it's New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, uh, and I do cases across the country, um, I always look at what will the jury's reaction will be to it. Because one thing I learned about trying cases uh, as an attorney and as a judge is you can't predict what juries will do, and they always decide the case on something that the attorneys and judges never anticipate. But they respect your ability to say, well, he's presided over 250, 300 trials and has settled innumerable other cases with juries. He must have some ideas to how they think. So that's where I think uh, it's not power, but it's respect for your knowledge and your experience. So going into the next question, how do you manage stress and how do you create balance in your life? Well, the first thing <clears throat> that I do Anytime I go into an arbitration or mediation, and it's something that I learned, um, particularly as a criminal court judge, because they used to engage in, in programs to sensitize us as to what was going on in the courtroom, is that is to remember that everyone who comes before you is a human being. This is not just another case. Um, you're dealing with someone's life. You're dealing with someone's business. And every day I try to, as I did when I was on the bench, remind myself of that every morning. This is not just another case. This is the most important case in the world to the people who are before me. And I always reminded myself that as a judge, and I remind myself uh, of that as a mediator and arbitrator. I'm very sensitive to that, and I strive to be fair. In terms of managing stress, that's very interesting. Um, I had one of the most amazing uh, law assistants uh, as a judge. And he had tried criminal cases for many years. And he said to me, judge, they're just all emotionally draining. And they are emotionally draining. And I think that the thing about being a mediator is that you go in and you are the ringmaster from the second that you walk into that room. You have to be on. It's not a normal job where you go to work you know, you ease into the day with a cup of coffee, you look at your emails, look at your computer. It's like really going on television. And now you are the host of the show. And the toughest day of the week for me is Monday morning, that first case where I have to get myself up and be positive and be patient and be uh, uh, in, in a mental state where I am going to listen and I am going to take my time because you are on the spot. And I think you keyed in on that. You know, it's always about you. Uh, actually, my wife always tells me it's always about you, but that's in a different set. <laughs> uh, the, the fact of the matter is, is that it is about you because you're running the show and the attorneys very often lean on you. And it is incredibly stressful at times. And then you touched on it, the subject matter. I mean, when you're dealing with cases involving vast amounts of money or you're dealing with cases about people who've been irreparably harmed, um, you know, in terms of what has transpired in their lives, it's incredibly stressful. The subject matter is stressful. And conflict management is incredibly stressful because, you know, you're, you're holding the uh, armies at bay, so to speak. I know you have military experience. I have military experience. You're keeping the two, you know, camps separate and trying to keep them calm. How do I manage that? Well, I will tell you, this is you know, on a personal level. I get up every morning, I do 20 minutes of yoga, and I do 20 minutes of meditation. I find that when I get up in the morning and I do that, uh, the yoga really gets me going physically. It helps me breathe. And by meditating, it puts me in a good state of mind before I get to work at the start of the process. There are times during the course of the process where you know we have a break, uh, and I will sit there and I'll take five minutes just to breathe. And I have to remind myself of that during the day in terms of 
stress management that I have to remember to breathe. I actually had a, a funny experience where an attorney once said to me, are you having a heart attack? You're breathing so deeply. I said, no, I'm actually calming down. I'm preventing myself from having a heart attack. I'm lowering my blood pressure. So that's a big part of it going in. Going out, I, I refuse to take it with me. Um, I make a mental decision at the end of the day that I have to stop. No matter what it is, I can pick it up the following morning. In other words, if something I did uh, or something that happened is really troubling to me, uh, if something that happened during the mediation is troubling to me or the arbitration, I have to make this mental effort. And I say to myself, John, just put it aside to, until tomorrow. Sleep on it. You know, meditate again at night, which I do. Do my yoga again at night, which I do. And get plenty of exercise, which I do. And I think that's a critical component because, honestly, mediators are a lot like athletes. Uh, I often analogize it to uh, Derek Jeter. And Derek Jeter, if you're a Yankee fan, you may not be. One of the comments that they made about him as a shortstop is Derek Jeter would pick up the hardest hit ball and he'd throw it to first base and it was effortless. It's not effortless. It's a repetition over thousands and thousands of times to get that play exactly right. And it's the same thing with the media. You see the scenario thousands and thousands of times and you have to get it right. And it's almost automatic. But being, an, but being automatic, you can't uh, lose the fact that you have to be present. And that's another thing that I do, uh, which doesn't necessarily reduce stress, but it is part of the stress. I have to be present for every word that's said during the course of that eight hour, 10 hour, four hour, three hour mediation. So yoga, meditation, breathing, exercise, and putting it aside at the end of the day. Beautiful. And I completely agree with you about the athleticism. It's a mental athleticism. Mm -hmm. um, so with, you know, I want to go back a little bit to what you were talking about in terms of mass filings. I believe you were talking about some of the challenges. And, and so we're switching gears a little bit again. Um, but I wanted to know if you could kind of share with us the the employment matters or consumer matters arising out of these mandatory arbitration provisions. And if you can br briefly summarize the issues that are present. I'll try and do it briefly and I'll try and do it as clearly as possible because it, it's a complex subject and there are two components of it. There's the arbitration process side of it and there's the arbitration business side of it. And the challenges that are coming up with what I would call, and I think what, what would be called, is the mass filing of individual arbitrations. And the question is, how did we get there? And if you look back at it historically, it's really fascinating. You know, for 40 years, in terms of inserting arbitration clauses into employment agreements, the Supreme Court of the United States, uh, over the course of that time, has expanded the FAA, the Federal Arbitration Act, to encompass a very broad range of disputes. And initially, the courts were loath to send litigation to arbitration. It was in some ways looked upon as a slight to the judicial system that you didn't want to be there, you wanted to resolve your dispute uh, privately. Now, over the course of 40 years, we've gone from it being a slight to the system to being please take these cases, please keep them in arbitration. We're going to uphold the arbitration clause. And one of the things that I say to attorneys is you have to 
draft the arbitration clause very carefully. And arbitration really, in my mind, if you have the right arbitrator, and if you have, that's on the process side, and if you have the right ADR company on the administrative side, you know, it can be, and it is a very uh, expedient, just, fair process, and most importantly, economical. And working with NAM, and I think I'll go back to what I had said initially in making that transition, uh, I, I have worked, you know, on panels with other ADR providers, but uh, what I would say about NAM, and I can't speak for other ADR providers, is that the efficiency that I have behind me, you know, makes the arbitration process itself uh, so much easier, not only for myself, but for the parties. So that's the really the business administrative side of it. But in terms of the arbitration side, now four years later, the Supreme Court of the United States has gone the other way. As I said, they want everything to go if there is an arbitration clause. And the trend is, and I think I mentioned that earlier, every case I've had where there's a challenge to the arbitration clause, it comes back to me or it comes back uh, to the, you know, tri-panel. So now we have two Supreme Court cases come along, which are really interesting. You have um, Epic versus Lewis, and I'm always very bad with names, so I have to write them down, and Lamps Plus versus uh, Burrell. Now, these cases were fascinating because they both dealt with individual arbitration agreements that made no reference either to class actions or, you know, mass arbitration. And the court in Lewis held that under the NLRA, uh, individual arbitration agreements are enforceable, and if they're silent, you don't have the right to bring a class action. So that obviously, that decision was favorable to the employer. And it was also, I think, related to a great extent in the shift of the Supreme Court to a more conservative majority. Uh, the court in Epic similarly held you can't have mass arbitration. So in other words, essentially mass arbitration would be inserting a class action into the arbitration process itself. So it would be a private class action versus a public class action. So now what happens? You know, and this is really where I look at it. You know, attorneys on both sides, whether they're representing the employee or the employer, are looking for the best way to represent their clients. And what has happened now is that uh, these rulings have resulted in law firms saying, well, we can't bring a class action. We can't bring a class arbitration. But what we're going to do is we're going to do mass individual filings, okay? Which is very interesting. It's a very interesting tactic. So, you know, I always used to say uh, in politics, you know, if you're going to speak to the media and you start rolling the snowball down a hill, you never really know where it's going to go. So now after 40 years, we don't have class actions arising out of individual arbitration agreements. We don't have mass arbitration arising out of individual arbitration agreements. But now the paradigm has shifted and employment lawyers who are representing the employees say, well, that's fine. Now we're going to bring 5,000 individual arbitrations, you know, against the employer. And that is exactly, you know, what has happened. And the issue then becomes, and this is not solely related to these cases, but it's a big issue in other cases. One party refuses to pay the upfront costs of the arbitration. So what happens when that happens? You have a party who's essentially saying, yeah, we agreed to arbitration, but we're not going to pay the fees. If you don't pay the fees, well, now and any other arbitration company is going to say, well, we can't proceed if you're not going to pay us to administer the process or there's not an agreement to pay the arbitrators. So that's a real problem. So what can you do? Now, this is, again, I'm trying to simplify a long process. Well, the paying party, you can have a paying party, and I had this on a recent case, can say, look, a 
we don't care if the other side pays. We are going to fund the arbitration. We will pay for the arbitration. And at the end of the arbitration, if we are successful, we'll get back our costs and our attorney's fees, and that is enforceable in court. So that's one way of dealing with it. The second way of dealing with it, if one party is not cooperating, is you can move either in state or federal court to compel arbitration. I just had that on the business dissolution case. That was the uh, application that was made uh, to compel the arbitration, and it was sent to me to arbitrate the case and make a determination as to the scope of the arbitration. The third case scenario is this. One side says, well, they're not going to pay for the arbitration, so therefore we believe them to be in fault with respect to the arbitration provision, so we're throwing it out. We're going into court. Our position is we're going to file a suit. We're going to file a class action. We're going to file an individual action. Then the other side is going to come in and say, yes, there's an arbitration agreement, and then the party who made the motion, or excuse me, brought the action in the state or federal court is going to say, yeah, there was an arbitration agreement. You refused to cooperate. You defaulted on it, so now we're back in court. So that all brings us to the Uber and DoorDash cases, uh, which are really examples of the mass filing by uh, employment attorneys of individual arbitrations. In the Uber case, there were 6,000, there were 6,000 individual filings, right? So 6,000 individual arbitrations now have to be held pursuant to the arbitration clause. clause. And the upfront administrative fees uh, to the ADR provider that Uber would have to pay, this is just the upfront, uh, came to $18 million, all right? Now, what wow. happens is, yeah, it's, it's staggering. Yeah. So that's just, that's just to get the ball rolling. So now, ultimately, what happened is because of this mass filing of individual arbitrations, Uber said, forget it. What we're going to do is just sell everything. Uh, and they settled the case for a reported uh, number in the area of $146 to $170 million. So they just said, we're going to throw our hands up. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to pay the upfront fees. We're not going to arbitrate all of these cases. We're just going to settle the case. And then what's happening with many uh, companies that are experiencing this phenomenon is they're just saying, look, we're going to take the arbitration clause out, which to me is self-defeating because if you take the arbitration clause out, now you are back to class actions, which you didn't want to have in the first place. So uh, the next example is DoorDash. Door DoorDash uh, had, you know, again, I believe it was about 4,000 employees and a U.S. District Court judge recently ordered them uh, to pay upfront filing fees in the amount of $12 million. So at this juncture, I believe DoorDash is going to pay those uh, filing fees or they're going to appeal that decision of the court. But again, the irony of all this is after 40 years of expanding the scope of arbitration and keeping these cases in arbitration, some companies are saying, well, this is you know, not going to work for us. We'll just let everybody go to court, let them bring a class action, or let them bring individual arbitrations. And, you know, that really defeats the process because the goal of an ADR company like NAM, the goal of an arbitrator like myself, is to provide a fair, efficient, equitable, you know, reasonably uh, uh, calculated process that's going to serve all the parties, not just the employer, but the employee, not just the employee, but the employer. But what's happening is that the upfront uh, filing fees, you know, are just so great that it's creating this quandary for everyone. Um, there have been three proposals. And as I talk to other uh, people in the industry, my colleagues, business people in the industry, 
there have been three proposals that have essentially been made. One is, well, let's deal with this legislatively. I, in my opinion, don't buy that because why are you now going to legislate private arbitration? Isn't the whole point of private arbitration to get it out of the legislative sphere for the parties to you know, freely agree this, these are going to be the rules that we're going to play by? We're going to uh, select, for example, incorporate into arbitration uh, clause NAM as our ADR provider. We're going to use their panel. Um, why now, after all these years, would you want to legislatively prescribe you know, the arbitration? It doesn't make any sense. Then the, at least to me, it may make sense to some people, it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, secondly, you know, the other thought has been, well, we'll have test cases. You know, we'll agree with the employer to have test cases. I don't know how that works, right? And I thought about it as a judge, and of course, I'm dealing in this amorphous area where I'm in my head trying to forecast, well, what would a court do with this? Because ultimately, there's going to be some type of challenge to this and litigation for years. Test cases, well, you know, let's say you're representing 5,000 employees. What do you tell the other, you know, 4,999 employees? Oh, we're going to have this test case. And when this test case is over, then we're going to have principles that are going to be applicable to all of your cases, and you're going to waive your rights to individually arbitrate it. You know, that just doesn't make sense to me. No. <laughs> it doesn't. So what, what has happened, and, you know, again, here's the business side of it with NAM. Um, NAM has taken a really different approach to this, which I think, you know, is going to work very well. And it goes to, you know, again, what I spoke about initially in terms of my transition. Uh, their efficiency as an ADR provider. Now, I'm not on the business side of this, and I'm not the expert, but I am, you know, in the trenches. I'm the person who's, you know, dealing with this, looking at this, thinking about this. And what NAM has done is really two things. They have uh, come up with a plan where they've reduced the administrative fee that is paid up front to one quarter of what the other leading ADR companies are charging at this point in time. And I think the, you know, the, the genius about that idea is that the big complaint is, is look, look, we're going to have to pay 18 million, 20 million, 10 million, 15 million, right off the bat, just to start the arbitration. Uh, NAM has come in with a system where you pay a quarter of that. So in other words, in the uh, Uber case, instead of 18 million, it would have been 4.5 million. In the DoorDash case, it would have been 3 million. And then what happens is they've deferred these administrative fees over a period of time where there are essentially you know, points in the arbitral process where other administrative fees will be paid. And then ultimately, if uh, there is an arbitration, you certainly have to pay the arbitrators to arbitrate it. But they've come up with this uh, system to reduce the administrative fees and in, on the front end so as to not deter the parties on either side from going through the uh, arbitration process, and then at the end have adjusted the fees so that at the end of the process, the cost for the arbitration will be approximately 50% less than it would be, for example, with other companies who are charging uh, at a different fee structure. So, you know, again, I'm not the business expert. There are details of this that I could never get into that uh, if, if I was that good at math, I would have gone to medical school many years ago. <laughs> But, you know, I look at the three solutions and I'm saying, all right, let, let's, let, let's summarize. 40 years of trying to get everything into arbitration. Now we're going to drop the arbitration clause, forget about arbitration, put it back into litigation. That makes no sense to me, all right? 
we're going to legislatively prescribe arbitration, which makes no sense to me because this is a contractual agreement between parties. And then the, you know, the third part of it is, is that, well, how do you deal with this? How do you make it doable for both the employee and the employer? Uh, what NAM has come up with is, you know, again, you know, cutting the upfront fees, deferring the other administrative fees during uh, the latter phases of the process, and then coming up with a cumulative cost that's 50% less at the end of the day. That serves all the parties. And, you know, one of the questions that I've asked is, well, how did they do that? And I think it goes back to what I said initially, is, uh, you know, they're a private enterprise. You know, again, I'm affiliated with them, but their focus has always been on how can we be more efficient for our clients? How can we facilitate the ABO process? How do we get buy-in from uh, clients, from attorneys to go through the ABO process? And with that type of focus, you know, and, and I would also say that type of thinking is not only prevalent within NAM itself, but it's prevalent among the arbitrators. The arbitrators who are exclusively affiliated with NAM have the same mentality, which is if we don't make this process expedient, fair, you know, and economical for the parties, then why would anyone arbitrate a case? They might as well just go to court. So I, I think, and again, you know, I'm not an expert on the business side. I keep on putting in that caveat. I've looked at the available alternatives and the only alternative that I can see to deal with, you know, mass individual filings of these arbitrations and to prevent companies from taking these arbitration provisions out and prevent everybody from going back to court. The most uh, logical way for, for it to be handled is the way NAM is suggesting with respect to the adjustment of fees. John, it was such a pleasure to meet with you today and, and to learn about your life, what's happening with NAM and these cases. And, and it's really quite fascinating. And I hope it brings a little bit more insight to, to those who are interested in getting into arbitration or understanding how to transition from, from a career into the ADR world. And I just, again, thank you so much for being here on our podcast. Well, it's, it's been my pleasure. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you, Honorable John DeBlasi, for sharing your insight and experience on ADA resolutions. To learn more about Honorable John DeBlasi or NAM, please visit www.namadr.com. Again, www.namadr.com. Thank you for listening.